Hello and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you? Um, I want to talk to you today about a movie that I just watched on uh, digital streaming services uh, called Knives and Skin. This one's kind of interesting because it is not uh, exclusively or, or distinctively horror in, in the strongest, clear sense, meaning that I don't think that its primary function is to scare people. However, it sort of exists in that beautiful world between things, which I lovingly refer to as uh, movies in the mood of the macabre, which is that even though its goal, primary goal is not to scare people, uh, it is a movie to some extent about a, a scary thing and a, a dark thing with a kind of supernatural energy, though the story itself is not truly supernatural. Um, so we'll go with it. Um, I just, I also just really like this movie, and so I wanted to tell you, you all about it. Uh, I don't have, I didn't prepare much on this, so if it goes awry, then we'll all just cope. Uh, but I wanted to say a few things. I mean, one of the things, I, I don't watch trailers, which I've said before, and so I go into things totally, uh, blank, and then I, <laughs> then I learn with great curiosity what the movie's actually about, because I genuinely don't know. Uh, and, and also that experience is fun because I, I try not to read any in-depth reviews. I, I sometimes have to skim some reviews lightly just to get a sense of if I want to watch something, as opposed to just being totally clueless as to what it's about. Uh, but this one, you know, I had no idea what it was about, and I, I found the, the periphery research I did, I thought it was all sort of, like, troubling and... <laughs> <laughs> and not very accurate and, and kind of a little simplistic. And I don't always necessarily mean to respond to critic reviews in every episode of this thing, but um, I read reviews after I watch the movie, and then I find that my experience, especially with horror films and genre films, is that the account of the movie as provided by reviews is just perilously shit. So I, I wanted to intervene a bit. So I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do non-spoilers. Um, I do non-spoilers first. So before, uh, in the, the first half, I'll tell you everything that I would tell someone who's going to go see this movie and everything that maybe would help you understand and experience the movie in, 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 in a positive way without spoilers. And then I will ring a physical bell, which sounds like this. Uh, and then I will switch to spoilers. And I, I do know that I could just tell you that I'm switching to spoilers, but the bell makes it festive. Um, okay, here's here's my pitch on this movie. First of all, all of the, the a lot of the reviews, some of which are quite uh, annoying and negative, um, uh, they all rather simplistically refer to it as a version of, of Twin Peaks. Um, I, read, I read one review that referred to it as uh, Twin Peaks recast through the lens of radical feminism, which is so annoying for so many reasons. First of which is like, feminism is not a radical concept. <laughs> Those words don't belong next to each other, sir. Um, I think if you think that it's a radical concept that women don't want to be murdered for refusing to have sex with men, something is wrong in your life personal opinion. Um, I statements. I believe that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so that's weird. 
but also, I, I want to throw out some references that I think might help you understand or preemptively have a sense of this movie that are not David Lynch. So, yeah, there's definitely a way that Twin Peaks feels relevant. Uh, also, Blue Velvet, sure, absolutely. Not saying that's not true, but just saying, like, just because we all know David Lynch movies doesn't mean that we have to take everything that is inspired by David Lynch and reduce it. This is a really interesting movie. It's a very complex... I said complex and complicated at the same time. So what I said was complex, which is a complex phrase. Anyway, so it's a, compl it's a complex movie. Um... Here's, here's some things that I thought of when I was watching it, just to give you a sense, because it's also, I understand the impulse, because it is genuinely hard to describe movies to people. Tone is not, there's not a very set, precise way to describe tone. Uh, so sometimes we use other movies. Here's some that I would throw out. Uh, one is David Byrne's True Stories. Uh, I think, uh, I definitely thought of True Stories. I love... David Byrne's True Stories, which is not a horror movie, but certainly a very surreal movie and also kind of a musical. Uh, well, not kind of. It is a musical. I would stand by that. It's a true musical in the strictest sense. Um, this movie, fun fact, in addition to being a kind of a surreal suburban murder story, uh, is lightly a musical, and I love it for that. So it is this kind of small town that is brought to life through these very surreal musical numbers. And the first feeling I have when I think of that is David Byrne's True Stories, which is phenomenal. Um, I also definitely would say tonally uh, may, a little bit of something like It Follows, in the sense that this is a contemporary story that also plays around with a sense of time. There's a lot about it that is uh, a bit idiosyncratic or atemporal. Um, and that was a feature of It Follows and, and, and the energy about It Follows that I think pervades a couple of subsequent, uh, you know, uh, pieces of media that are deeply inspired by It Follows. Um, uh, there was this, like, online controversy that Riverdale had basically taken the poster from It Follows and reproduced it. Uh, if you notice ever on Netflix, <laughs> there, is a, there is a poster for Riverdale which just takes the same uh, poster from It Follows. So there definitely has been an influence of that. Uh, and, and by that I mean that this is contemporary, but also there's a lot of... So the music is all 80s music, for example. Which, by the way, also calls to my true stories. But the music is all 80s music, but it's not a period film. Uh, there is, you know, it's, it seems contemporary. There is contemporary technology. Uh, but there's also, like, a lot of cassette tapes play a factor in the plot. There's a very poignant and specific reference to Star Wars, you know, which is 70s. But th this is... Uh, there's an interesting layer with time happening as well in this. Um, and also Donnie Darko a little bit as well. It is a, t a sort of a teen movie with a sense of apocalyptic dread, which I love. Uh, and, and, and it has a bit of the quality of like a Donnie Darko, which is also set in the 80s and has just a sense of the ways that this everyday teen life has this resounding kind of cosmic importance. That's also a vibe. And um, this other movie that I feel like no one ever talks about or maybe has ever seen, um, which is called The Chum Scrubber, which I think, I think if I recall correctly, was terribly received when it was released and, and deemed a derivative version of Donnie Darko. But 
I always really liked that movie. I haven't seen it in years, so maybe I would take it back <laughs> now. But that movie, if you've never seen The Chum Scrubber and you like these other movies I just named, like It Follows and Donnie Darko, watch, uh, watch The Chum Scrubber. It's a movie about Lou Taylor Pucci um, from Thumbsucker and other, other movies. Uh, uh, is uh, He plays, I think it's Lou Taylor Pucci. I hope I'm not fucking that up. I believe it's him. He plays a drug dealer in a suburban enclave who commits suicide and basically his suicide takes away everyone's source of narcotics which removes them or separates them from their coping mechanisms and just sends this whole town into a you know a, a very erratic state because everyone was relying on him for their sort of numbing and stabilizing uh, medication. <laughs> uh, and it's Jamie Bell is the lead in that, and uh, Glenn Close plays his mother, Lou Taylor Pucci's mother. And there's a, just a heartrending scene where Jamie Bell is, is telling Glenn Close, the mother, about her dead son. And so it's very, it's unusual, it's surreal, it's apocalyptic, it's funny, it's absurdist. Uh, Knives and Skin, by the way, also has an absurdist bent, which I love about it. Uh, and so yeah, the, the Chum Scrubber, if you haven't seen that, I mean, that's a reference that probably doesn't help a lot of people, but also I'll throw that out <laughs> as a thing you might like and might want to watch. But basically, one of the things I find interesting about this that I would put forward to for anyone who's going to watch it, which by the way, this is, it's in theaters, but it's in very limited theatrical Exhibition. If you could find it in a theater, great. I'd love. I would have loved to have seen it in a theater, but it's not playing anywhere near uh, where I am. Um, but you can also rent this on digital. So if you know, much like uh, all of these, uh, this released by IFC Midnight. So IFC Midnight. If you're a horror fan, you probably know this. But IFC Midnight puts out most of their movies on digital, same as theatrical. Uh, and I've seen Midnight. If you don't know I've seen Midnight and you're a horror fan, you should get acquainted. It's a very um, I wouldn't say every movie is good, but I would say that most, uh, I would say that the the stuff they put out seems authentically curated by people who care and like horror movies uh, in a way that not every studio that puts out horror movies does. And so, and also pretty much everything that they put out is fairly small and low budget and stuff that, stuff that is, I'm stuff that I'm really happy has a place in the universe uh, as enabled often by digital distribution avenues like streaming. So in all of the catastrophe of the streaming wars and all this fallout and complication, uh, the silver lining of stuff like streaming services is that there is a direct way to put cool, really small horror movies on the internet for people who want them that really exempts a lot of the the bullshit that's involved in getting a movie you know in theaters and at many theaters which is not always possible with a small film without movie stars in it uh, it's just it kind of is a direct connection which i really like um i wish i lived near a theater that showed ifc midnight movies in theaters all the time i know there are some that show them pretty regularly uh, but I will, I rent, I rent, on average, I rent more than I don't, I think, of their movies. And, and I've liked more than I don't of their movies. Um, I don't know how I got onto that topic, so I'm just going to continue from here. <laughs> uh, it's, anyway, it's available on digital. I think that's what I was saying. Yeah. Oh, about the, the, what I would say about the tone or the pace. That's what I was saying, I hope. 
I'll find out when I listen back. Uh, when I was talking about the tone or the pace of the movie, here's what. This movie's great, and it has a really interesting combination of, 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 of pace. In that it is, I think, in part, a gorgeous collection of wonderful scenes that I really like. And at times, it explores a somewhat non-sequitur or disjointed structure. And then, and then, there are these other times where it is sort of the most integrated, overlapping, fluid movie I can imagine. And it is both of those things at different moments. And so expect that. Uh, you know, it is a movie where there are some scenes that are really kind of hard cuts, where you go from something, you know, some, you know, and they're not always necessarily the most integrally in terms of plot. Sometimes it's a sense or an emotional connection. Sometimes it's just about the feeling of watching. Uh, you know, so they'll just, they'll sometimes they'll, you'll just cut, you just like smash cut to sad clown cunnilingus, and that's just the thing that you have to deal with in the frame, or you'll just cut to a really sloppy meatloaf being smooshed on a kitchen counter, and you just have to live with that image. And sometimes the image is the motivation as opposed to the, 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 the plot. And so... If you're a plot-heavy person and you only want to look at things that convey succinct plot points, you might struggle. Uh, <laughs> you might be frustrated. But if you are that kind of a human and you also would would be interested to take the you know the, take the journey, I do think that there is there are moments that are stylistically much more fluid. So, for example, I also think that this is a movie that uses a lot of uh, dissolves and uh, superimpositions to connect scenes, sometimes uh, dramatically so. And I'll talk about more of those things in spoilers. But this is a movie where I think sometimes it's quite non-sequitur and sometimes it's quite incredibly enmeshed. And those choices, I think, are really interesting and I think they work really well. But that is an that is an energy that you might must anticipate, and and if you are not prepared for it, maybe that might be a thing that would turn you off. It's not a strictly narrative film. It is a very, it is driven more by the logic of emotion and imagery than it is plot. Just so you know, heads up. Uh, and I'm gonna tell you uh, one scene, one early scene that I really love. I don't think it's a spoiler because it is it's so early. Um, and it'll also let me tell you just a bit about the, a bit more about the plot of the movie. But this is a movie, um, so basically the premise is that there's a young girl named Carolyn who is uh, missing. And we know from an early point that she's dead. Uh, and basically she goes out to the woods with this uh, jock who is terrible and uh, he... They have an, uh, an argument. Uh, she had wanted to have sex with him, then doesn't want to have sex with him, and he doesn't accept that. And so he basically leaves her in the woods without her glasses, and she's unable to find her way back and dies, uh, which is which is unfortunate and awful. And that tragedy 
kind of is the undercutting or underlying, I guess I need to say, incident that catalyzes the rest of the story. Uh, and there's sort of lots of undercurrents of dark and unusual things happening, or even if not dark, uh, un typically unrepresented things happening within this suburban community, which are all sort of slowly boiled to the surface in the wake of the kind of emotional connection or emotional dread fueled by this missing, probably dead girl. Uh, but there's one scene early on I just want to give I just want to give you this scene as a characterization because th basically if you if I were someone else and someone was trying to talk me into watching this movie, all, all they would have to do is describe that. <laughs> if someone described this to me, I would go immediately. Uh, and that's this early scene, uh, which is really the first musical scene in the movie. Uh, so Carolyn's mother, who's played by Marika Engelhart, uh, who is someone I did look up by name because her performance is so fucking good in this movie. Um, not, not, not to, con to conspire with the, you know, the, the obsessive reference to David Lynch, but it, it does have this shade of Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet in that it is often required to be very hysterical and very, very high tension. And it has, it has such warmth and tragedy and humor and absurdism and darkness. It, it, it toes a line between something totally heartrending and, and uncertain, a bit uncanny and, and, and playful. It's so, it's really fucking good. But there's a scene early on where she, so she's a music teacher at the high school where all of these girls are students and she is teaching this class and the night that her daughter disappeared, she's gone into her room and put on one of her dresses, which is like a floor length mermaid gown that's like green sparkles. Uh, and, and, you know, but when they get back to school on say Monday morning, uh, she's still, she hasn't taken off the, the, the sparkle mermaid dress. And so she's just wearing it pulled over her, her clothes. And uh, the girls' choir is singing a really beautiful, uh, poignant rendition of The Go-Go's Our Lips Are Sealed, which is a song about secrets. And, uh, and the music teacher, uh, Mrs. Harper, uh, is, is just in the presence of the, or in the absence of, of her daughter, is just sobbing completely. Uh, and it's just this, it's just, it's a feeling I could live in forever. It's like, it's completely tragic with a touch of absurdism. Uh, and something about that I, I am very attracted to, especially when you add music. Uh, and so some references I would give for that would be two that come to mind. One is uh, that in the Martin Scorsese movie, The King of Comedy, there is a scene that I, I have sometimes said is the best moment of Sandra Bernhardt's career because I just, I'm obsessed with it and I love it so much. And, and it's basically a scene where, uh, if you've not seen that movie, oh, you really should. It's so good at being sort of dark and tragic, but also absurdist. But Sandra Bernhardt's character, they, they've basically kidnapped a talk show host played by Jerry Lewis. And she, there's a scene where she's singing Come Rain or Come Shine. 
and just like just seeing Commander Come Shine in a totally it's 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 it is not unemotional. It is emotional. It's a sad character. And she's singing Come Rain or Come Shine, and which the lyrics of which are, you know, you're gonna love me like nobody's loved me, right? It's this it's like a torch song, it's desperate. And then uh, she's tape but at the same time she's taping Jerry Lewis to a chair. So it's totally I mean it's it's totally disturbing. But she's singing this song, and it's a really desperate song about wanting to be loved. But the whole thing is sort of ridiculous, uh, and it's a very sublime moment. I I'm really attracted to to m- movies, and especially moments within movies that can make feelings happen in sort of triplicate, right, or in in multiples. And I think that scene touches on that. And then the other one that came to mind is uh, there's. A scene early in the Karin Kusama movie, Jennifer's Body. Which, by the way, I loved Jennifer's Body when it came out. And not to be that person, but I loved it when it came out. And, I, and I, I've read nothing but beautiful, wonderful uh, articles this whole last year about how much that movie was incredibly mishandled. And how it was not due the criticism it was given uh, and there's been all these attempts to reclaim and sort of salvage and save Jennifer's body in the sort of pop culture consciousness. So, so cool, because I think that movie is great. But there's a moment really early in that movie that is the definition of a tragic absurdist moment, and it's not irrelevant to what's going on here, which is when the, those band members are... Um, when when Megan Fox's character, Jen... Jennifer, uh, is getting uh, murdered, and which is basically the insane incident of the movie. It's not a spoiler. It's what the movie's about. Um, and they realize her name is Jenny, and then as they're murdering her, they start singing 8675309, which is so, it's such a tragic scene. It's a, it's a really dark scene, but the, the air of absurdism, and then something about the element of live singing. I don't know why that really just pushes it over the edge for me. But watching this girls' choir sing Our Lips Are Sealed and watching Marika Engelhardt's performance, which is beautiful, uh, and the tragedy of it and the absurdism of it and the 80s music, the whiff of 80s musicality, it's a totally transcendent, wonderful moment. And if the, you don't want to watch that, I don't, I don't, you know, to each their own. But I, I couldn't possibly want to watch anything else (laughs) uh so that's my pitch for for the movie and and the sort of lead into the movie uh and and i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna i think that's all i can say so i'm gonna ring a bell and then switch to spoilers okay so spoilers for this movie here i want to just sort of bridge that early part and talk about some other of the really great musical moments in this movie. I didn't know there was anything musical about the movie. I had very little information. As I said, I don't generally watch trailers, hardly ever. Um, But I think possibly even with the trailers, I don't know if the trailers sell any musical moments. My guess is probably not, because it's kind of a hard sell. Even the damn Cats trailers don't hardly have music in them. Uh, It's like that trick where they market a, a, a European movie that's not in English and they just put one 
line that actually happens to be in English, where it's like someone asking for a, a taxi or something, and the whole trailer is silent, and then there's one English line, and so they, they're trying to market it as though it's actually a film not in a foreign language, uh, as if people will be happy if, they've, if they're aggressively anti-watching a non-English film, and then they find one. If you surprise musical someone, they're probably, they're probably not going to be happy if they happen to be actively opposed to watching musicals. I don't know. Maybe there are people who are converted in the room. No clue. Uh, but still, a lot of a lot of musicals don't, don't market themselves as musicals, and it's like a fun surprise. Uh, and I wouldn't say this is a true musical, but I would say it certainly has strong musical elements. But so we talked about the Our Lips Are Sealed scene, which I think is was truly the moment where I was in like fully into the movie it's so good but we have to talk about some of the other ones every one of them is great like the every every time someone is singing in this movie i am so happy um the gorgeous um uh, i melt with you sort of lesbian love song Incredible. Uh, the 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 so uh, you know, these these two young women who find each other and pass notes across you know in the bathroom stalls in secret. It's uh, so beautiful and and so wonderful. But this moment where they have this duet, which is itself a gorgeous collaboration of of their voices and their beings, and then the the choice to use the slow dissolve and in order to bridge physically their faces while they're duetting. So they're sort of their faces and their voices are duetting simultaneously. Oh, good Lord. It, that is so good. It makes me so happy. It's such a beautiful moment. And there are so many moments in this movie that I think are so stunningly beautiful. Um, and just watching and just sort of go, moving from each to the next is such a joy. It's such a joy. Uh, that one is great. And then also, too, I mean, maybe even the best one. I don't need, know that we need to even rank them, but I the the Blue Monday scene as well, um, which gives me so much about what I loved about the, the first choir scene plus extra, which is the collection of girls whispering secrets to each other as they're singing this song. That is, uh, that is one of my favorite scenes, probably, that I've seen all year. Uh, it reminded me immediately of this ridiculous anecdote, um, from, like, fifth grade going to Catholic school, uh, which is the, <laughs> the, the, the emphasis on, um, discipline and, like, reprimanding Catholic school is a little bit high, but uh, there is one day where there were, there are two girls in the class who were I don't know if they were mouthing I think they were maybe mouthing back and forth to each other like in history class and like the nun in front of the room decided to yell at them because they were prob possibly like mouthing words back and forth to each other silently while this history class was happening. And I remember her saying something like, you know, you, you, you need to stop talking. And then one of the girls said, we're not talking. And then the nun's brain short-circuited because technically they were not talking. Uh, and so she just froze and 
paused and then twinged and said, you are having non-verbal communication with each other. And I thought that phrase is so fucking weird. <laughs> That's a great phrase and it's also crazy and that she racked her brain as a way to justify her anger and be upset. Anyway, uh, but the idea of the of these two girls having nonverbal communication in a Catholic grade school class, uh, that was the first feeling I had when I was watching that scene where each each one turns to the next and whispers something secret or something private in in the scope of this musical number, which is itself really beautiful to listen to. Um, and the the one that's like the most poignant. Um, is when I think her name is I'm bad on names but I think her name is Joanna uh, the the young girl who's selling her mother's underwear which is a great character and then turns to I forget actually who the other girl is I feel like it is the girl who draws the vagina and then passes it to the other girl and they start their secret lesbian romance. I feel like it's the first girl. I think that's who it is. Uh, but she turns to her and says something to the effect of, I think, I, I think I'd have to be gone for 10 days before someone even noticed I was missing. And then the other girl turns back and whispers, uh, if... If you were missing, I would notice immediately and assume the worst. Which is that kind of like... It's that terrible place where a, a dark thing is somehow also the most comforting thing. Uh, it's an acknowledgement of danger. It's an acknowledgement that the peril that you are afraid of is real and that it's you're not paranoid. But it's also completely acknowledging danger in a way that is sometimes just too much to bear. But the fact that between these two girls, the like the sentiment of friendship is that she's to avow the possibility of their of their being the victim of violence or or murder is totally heartbreaking. And then to confine that in this sort of montage of secrets and to confine that in a musical number made me so happy. It was uh, happy in the sense that it was incredibly emotional, but like happy in the sense that I think it's really fucking good. Uh, and so all the musical numbers, I think, are just special. Uh, but I do think that there's there's a lot. Like I, I feel like um, I mentioned in the non-spoilers that the movie kind of leaps from, from point to point in a way that I love. Uh, but I, I think every scene almost has its own distinct concept. And I love the concepts for so many scenes. You know, there's a lot of scenes that uh, they're unusual. They are, uh, they are uh, specific as to what is happening. Uh, and they don't play out in an unremarkable way. I think in a lot of movies, there are lots of scenes that play out in an unremarkable way, meaning that it's a scene with some girls at lunch talking about whatever. Uh, in this movie, I feel like every scene has a concept. Every scene is an intentional, wonderful, kind of mini moment that could almost be extracted from the movie and still play and be really beautiful. 
Um, but like some, so, so some of these things I'm talking about, the scene where, um, the scene where, uh, the police detective or whatever his rank is, I don't know, I don't remember, uh, is at Carolyn's house and her mother says, no, don't touch anything. And he says, well, how am I supposed to investigate? And she says, you tell me and I'll touch everything. And so we just get this montage of her mother just touching every kind of ornate piece of bric-a-brac on, you know, on her dresser or around her room. And it's this beautiful montage of just all the little ornate tchotchkes. There's a, there's a lot of, like, uh, emotionality around tchotchkes in this movie, or, like, trinkets. Uh, both in this scene where they're sort of just like hand, like it's just physically, just a, a montage of slow dissolves of shots of Marika Engelhart, Carolyn's mom, Mrs. Harper, just palming little trinkets and ceramic things from her dresser. Um, and then we have, just not to lose train of thought, but just to double down on that, the exchanging of the small ceramic things across the bathroom stall and this sort of like secret romance moment which is so beautiful uh, but just the materiality of these little things which are sort of ornate and pretty and cute but like become incredibly invested in with something that is romantic or sad or emotional is great but then also okay so another scene by the way that has that kind of a theme or a concept that i love the scene where uh mrs harper is smells Carolyn in that uh, the jock's car and the just her that that whole scene right that's a wonderful unusual scene and it is if you can take an unusual kind of comedic concept and make it tragic and beautiful and emotional and give it depth I'm I love that that's so hard to do it's not easy to do the fact that she is sniffing this teenage boy in his car, uh, which is on the surface very funny that there's a woman who is sniffing his car and sniffing the seats of his car and sniffing him. It's visually kind of funny, but it is, in terms of the meaning of it, incredibly heartbreaking because she is, she is, she's, she is, her oddness is fueled by a complete desperate sadness. And it is, a, it's a great idea for a scene. It's not a scene I've ever seen before. There's a lot of scenes in this movie that are just not scenes I've ever seen before. And there's nothing that says that you have to write scenes that no one's seen before. But I feel like I've seen a lot of movies in my, my time. Um, and to encounter new things or to encounter new spins on, you know, I just saw a movie last night, which I won't name because I don't want to, uh, I don't want, I don't like to talk about things that I don't like. Um, but one of the things I was saying about it when I was leaving the theater was like, I feel like every scene in that movie is, is something that I have already encountered. And no matter what the plot, where, no matter where the plot went, I feel like they always chose a moment to represent that aspect of plot that I had seen so many times before. Um, it's just, and you just, it's just, it just becomes, it, it becomes background noise. 
I do not, I don't think, I can not recall a, a movie about a grieving mother who is sniffing the body of the teenage boy who was responsible for her, her death. Um, and I certainly can't imagine that in this particular tonal combination of being silly or absurd and dramatic and, and uncomfortable. That's, it's new. It's all new to me. So, <laughs> so I, you know, and again, that's what I mean when I say every scene has a concept. There is an, an there's an effort and an intentionality to every moment uh, and every moment has a bearing. It doesn't always have a bearing in terms of plot, but I don't think, again, as I said in the non-spoilers, plot is not the primary focus here. But in terms of emotions and imagery, there's always something really interesting happening in this movie. It makes me so happy. Uh, and there's also, and I would say add this too, which is there's a really strongly uh, pursued, I think, uh, uh, desire to have the most mundane parts of this story be hugely important. So there's a couple moments, for example, there's a couple moments in this movie, and I really like this about the movie, and I, I, I suspect maybe this is the kind of thing that some people don't or have criticized. I mean, a lot of the reviews that I read that were negative... Um, sincerely seems to be bothered that the movie and the people who made the movie uh, wanted to say something with it. Like, they acted like it was audacious and, uh, and unjustified for the movie to have ambitions and for it to have something to say and for the movie to uh, intend to say something important and sincere. Which I don't understand that as a criticism. Uh, to criticize a, a piece of art for having a point of view and wanting to express something, I don't, you know. Uh, there's just this way that I feel like people who take f overly familiar tropes as neutrality then imagine that things that subvert or expand upon those overly familiar tropes are trying to do something whereas the things that they are familiar with are comfortable and so they privilege what is comfortable because they view it as the absence of, of effort when in fact it takes just as much work to make something mundane as it does to make something interesting it's just that the people who make something interesting have a desire to go beyond that initial scope if that makes any sense the point being, every movie is saying something, even if what it's saying is very boring. Uh, so trying to say something different or interesting is not trying, whereas saying something familiar is not trying. Everything is trying. It's just that one is trying to work in a different way than the other. I don't know if that made any sense. My point being, I don't understand the critique of a piece of art that it attempts or aspires to communicate something important. I think that's kind of the point. Anyway, but there are these moments where there's an incredibly small happening and the movie sits on a line of dialogue and gives that line of dialogue supreme importance in the scope of the whole film. And what I mean by that is, so there's a couple of these, and, and 
I, I imagine that this is worked out this way because it feels so intentional and it feels it, it really reverberates in this way. But there's a scene, for example, where uh, the, the grandma character, who's great, the grandma who's obsessed with grass, more, more of her, she, <laughs> the grandma who's obsessed with grass is great. Uh, <laughs> but there's a scene where the jock character asks his grandma to call the police and kind of leave a message saying that, you know, something about the being the last to see Carolyn. Um, and, uh, and there's, she hangs up the phone and she touches his head because his, his head has a, a scratch on it from his altercation with her. And, you know, she, and it's the, the last line of the scene is she touches his head and says, does this hurt? Right, um, and there's just a, a, a there's just an allowance of the line to sit, and the, I think a very clear acknowledgement in terms of the score and the way that the the scene lingers on that line, that obviously it's about more than the head wound. Uh, there's a moment where Joanna is uh, where the substitute teacher uh, is who's replacing Miss Lawton. Um, and by the way, I only, I only remember the name Lawton over all the other names because there's that Timothy Chalamet rap from high school where he raps about Miss Lawton's math class. So <laughs> that's literally, I remember Miss Lawton, who's not even in the movie. I remember that name, but not anyone else's name, sorry. Uh, because of that stupid uh, Timothy Chalamet rap video. Anyway, Miss Lawton is absent and she's replaced by a substitute teacher who's kind of creep. And, but he's sort of hovering around her talking about writing romantic sonnets and physically brushes up against her and leans over and puts down a paper in front of her. And he's obviously setting up this uh, romantic pass. He's trying to make it her and it's super gross. And it, there's a hard cut to a scene where, I don't remember the character's name. It's the character who helps so, and Taylor dresses for Joanna's mother. I don't remember her name. Um, and she's sort of smitten with a football player. And anyway, she's tutoring him. And, uh, or is, no, is it, did I screw up which character it is? I hope not. Anyway, there's a character, she's tutoring a football player. And, uh, you know, the first line of the scene is, this is wrong, right? Which feels and reverberates in response to the past being made by the teacher, but which is in the context of the scene about his, his math homework or whatever. Uh, and then one of the, the sort of most particular ones is the, uh, that same character, if I haven't fucked it up, the... <laughs> Which could be happening, so bear with me. But that same character later, she's uh, she she gets tripped in the hallway. There's like a there's a whole arc about this football player that she's smitten with, kind of learning not to treat women like shit, which is an ongoing theme of the movie. Which is that so many of the men in the movie do treat women like shit. Which, by the way, the 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 bedazzled "I treat women like shit" uh, sports jacket at the end, or what do you call it? Varsity jacket is that what you call it? I don't do sports. This is a gay podcast. I don't know if you caught on yet. Um, I don't know sports, but the I treat women like shit bedazzled varsity jacket is wonderful. Um, but uh, she's, uh, he, I, I forget how it all works out, but she is basically tripped and her guitar breaks and it's, the 
it's a fucking nightmare. And um, which we, who doesn't relate, by the way? What what person, and especially a queer person, doesn't relate to living in a world where we all have to deal with those people? Uh, but you know, she goes into the bathroom and her face is bleeding, and she's and the two uh, the two girls who are having the secret lesbian romance, which are beautiful characters, uh, are whose names I don't remember, I'm sorry, who, and they're passing love notes in the bathroom stall, and she just, the girl who's bleeding says, uh, I think she says this is worse than it looks. Or did she say it looks worse than it is? I actually can't remember anymore, but I kind of like that just the same. I think she says it's it's worse than it looks. I think that's what she says. Oh, now I want to know. I don't want to pay for another rental. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but there's a, there's a moment, which again, the fact that I can't remember the line's my fault, but uh, there's a moment where that line... If she, if she says it's not as bad as it looks, I think the re- If that is what she says, which I don't think it is, I think she says it's worse than it looks. But if that's, if she says the former, it's in a way that suggests she means the latter. Uh, but I think she says the latter. Anyway, but again, the scene just sits there and there's a sort of cue in the score and it sort of swells and it feels like a very big moment, even though it's a very small moment. In the in the in the, the sort of the arc of the film, and there are a lot of these moments where it's just kind of uh, there's a small something, and that small something signals so much about what the movie is about, uh, and and I, and I love that I love that specificity. I love that that's an arc through that's a thread throughout the movie. This it's ultimately a movie about like w- you know what happens when you take very seriously the everyday trials of these characters. These are these are young women who every day are having to deal with fucking men treating them badly or people tripping them in the hallways or they have to deal with this missing girl who is an embodiment of all of those things, all of that kind of mistreatment. Um, they're, they're, they have all of these secrets that are not taken as valid. They're expression of their pain and disappointment is not taken as valid. The men who are supposed to be their authority figures are trying to have sex with them or who are exploiting them in some other way. Like, it is all about kind of building to the end of the movie where they all kind of go up on the roof together and are looking for a pathway out. Uh, and, and there's this sort of great moment of we want to see a, a, a way into another world. Uh, which is a very queer theme, the idea of believing in the sort of hypothetical, always in the future feeling of what if we could build a better world. And that's it's very much in the DNA of the movie. It's very much a strong idea within the movie. Uh, and again, that's part that's why I like this movie so much. I think it's I think it it tackles all those things in a, a really wonderful way that is visually interesting that is emotional and not simplistic, that creates really complicated feelings as opposed to familiar feelings. Um, Some things I haven't mentioned yet, and I almost have like a list in my head of surplus um, (laughs) that I just want to put out. Uh, One is I haven't talked about the lighting in the movie, and I I wish I had brought it up actually probably non-spoilers, but I'll do it now, which is the movie's a kind of 
there's an article in this collection called Neo Noir, and there's an article called Under the Neon Rainbow, which basically talks about the way that in Neo Noir, uh, uh, God, that's, this is going to be a tongue twister, in Neo Noir, meaning films that represent st- styles and themes from classic 1940s film noir, neon supplanted uh, chiaroscuro lighting. Uh, or high contrast lighting. So chiaroscuro or high contrast lighting is basically all those shadowy scenes. Um, you know the the like so for example like uh, Orson Welles in The Third Man being in the darkness and then having his face revealed in the the alleyway, or any other pick any film noir, <laughs> any character that's lit with uh, a, without much fill light to look shady or shadowy physically, and then of course obviously thematically. Uh, the chiaroscuro lighting or high contrast lighting from the 40s, because color, you know, because neo-noir stuff that was made, say, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or after, because it was so much the time of color cinematography, that n- neon became a kind of interesting way of replacing uh, the contrast of uh, high, chiaroscuro or high contrast lighting. Meaning that neon sort of sticks out or stands out in brightness, even in a, a universally color frame um and there's a great sorry in so in the collection called neo noir the first chapter which is called under the neon rainbow which was what i was trying to say earlier but i struggled uh is i think it's by katharina galitra and it's a really great article about how this works and she actually reads uh, a, a technicolor manual and reads how the technicolor manual uh technicolor by the way was a, a common color process in the 50s if you don't know but she reads how the Technicolor Color Manual um, advises, it sort of tries to teach people who are working on movies how to use color, meaning that they basically say, don't use color in an obtrusive way. Don't use color in a way that calls attention to itself. Don't have anything in the frame that draws attention from the action. Because again, classical Hollywood is all about invisible, invisible lighting, invisible editing. Um, and then she talks about uh, in... The movie Niagara, which is like a 50s noir, like a, a 50s noir that's also sort of a 50s technicolor melodrama with Marilyn Monroe, which is a really cool movie. Um, how in Niagara, there's like a, you know, there's a scene where there's a red flashing bulb and how this bright red flashing bulb breaks all of the rules in the technicolor manual because it's it, it calls attention to itself. But of course, the red flashing bulb is to make us uncomfortable, to alert us to the sense of danger in the scene because ultimately it's a film about murder. Um, so anyway, so neon becomes a major theme, which side note, I once had a, an argument with a family friend because she insisted that, uh, Niagara was a black and white film. And I, uh, <laughs> I had like not that long ago read, I mean, I'd seen the movie a bunch, but I had read that article specifically about the use of color in the movie. And I was like, there's no way it's a black and white movie. I know it's in color. I've seen it. I've read articles about the use of color in that movie. And we went back and forth for a long time. And then eventually she started laughing because she realized that she had always watched it on a black and white television. And that even though the movie is a color movie, she only ever watched it on a TV in the 50s or 60s. And so she actually only ever saw it in black and white. So to her, it was always a black and white movie, which I think is hysterical. Uh, But anyway, so that article describes, I think, really well how neon calls attention to itself in a color color palette. And... uh, 
And so this movie is, is a very neon movie. It's stylistically, it's, you know, there's sort of the colliding bits of, like, neon pink and neon green, which have a, a really distinct contrast. Um, the homes have really great sort of, like, neon lighting that soars from all over the, the place. It sort of you know, it would, it would have to have been lit by someone with the strangest idea of interior design. So it's not a realistic lighting scheme, but it is a very expressive and really interesting visually designed lighting scheme. Um, so there's definitely a strong neonor element here. There's definitely a strong neon visual component. Um, and then, oh, I wanted to mention this early and I forgot to, and it just fell into my head, which is I read on a social media post that the hair and makeup in the movie was designed by Kat Sass. Uh, Kat Sass, for people who are listening to this, who care about uh, queer things and horror things, Kat Sass is a really wonderfully talented drag performer from Chicago. Um, and they are an amazing performer, singer, um, was, I think, a finalist in the Alaska Thunderfuck Drag Queen Competition of the Year. I think maybe placed second or third behind Abora. I think the finalists were Abora, Aurora Sexton, and Kat Sass, I believe. So they are extremely talented, and they've made a bunch of posts about... Uh, how they worked on on hair and makeup, which um, which I didn't have a mention, and so but the design like the the visual design of, of each character in the movie is so good. Um, I know that I have not been good on names, but I have not. I don't struggle to remember the characters. All of the characters have a really distinct visual look to them, and when you watch them in the choir scenes, you everyone it's like a, it's like it's like it has some of the joy of the old spice girls videos <laughs> because the thing about the spice girls was that each one was their own entity and they had their own hairstyles they had their own costume they had such a different identity and when you look at the choir scenes everyone is visually very distinct and everyone has a really distinct style and every character stands out and is very memorable visually um, so hair and makeup and costuming in this movie is also universally great. Um, I think I think those are most of the things that I have to say. Uh, so if you made it all the way to here, I, I assume you probably saw the movie. But if for some reason you made it all the way to here and you haven't seen the movie, uh, please do rent and watch the movie. I think it's wonderful. I think this is... It's, it's one of my favorite movies I've seen probably the whole year, maybe. Uh, it's certainly among the most interesting. It's one that I've already recommended the most and to just about everyone I could find to recommend it to. Uh, so I highly, highly recommend this. And if you made it all the way to the end of this, please do know that, um, as I always say, uh, it, it is it is contagious and we do recruit, so you're totally gay now. Bye!